1: As a listener to this podcast, you might often fantasise about your ideal cabinet, who you'd have as Prime Minister, Foreign Secretary, Chancellor or Home Secretary. But have you ever had that thought, but with beer? Thanks to our friends at Beer52, you can create your own cabinet of beers. You get a free case of eight craft beers, and all you have to do is cover the postage of £5.95. So go to beer52.com slash party. That's the word beer, the numbers five and two, dot com slash party and get your free case of eight beers. And you can arrange them however you like. You can create a cabinet, or depending on your political leanings, a shadow cabinet, or just leave them in the cabinet. And of course, the joy of a Beer 52 monthly subscription is that you can have a reshuffle every month, which would still make it more stable than most of the governments we have in the UK. It comes with a magazine and a snack, and if you don't like dark beer, you can choose the light option. You can pause or cancel at any time. So if you want to bring some stability, And you don't fancy a reshuffle, you can indeed lead by example. Go to beer52.com slash party and pay £5.95 postage to get all this now. Hello and welcome to the political party. I hope this episode finds you in a positive state. It does feel now that spring's come in with the sunlight being out more, the days being a bit longer, the vaccine getting to more people... That things are starting to look up a bit and starting to feel there feels a bit a bit more collective positivity around now i know that many of you who listen to the show aren't in the uk so i hope wherever you are that the weather is improving and that you get the vaccine soon but it does feel as if though perhaps the clouds are literally uh, as we enter spring starting to lighten a little bit and part and that some good news is on the way and that we can all start moving around a bit more and, and seeing each other a bit more um do let me know, at politicalpartypodcast.gmail.com, uh, if you're feeling more positive. And indeed, any, any reason to be positive, I'll take. Uh, and you can email the show about anything, any feedback about guests um, and suggestions. Sam has been in touch, and uh, he said, I'm writing because I've grown increasingly fond of your apology to everyone when you realise you've gone over time. Now... I never realised back in the olden days that I had a catchphrase, which was, this is someone I've wanted to interview for um, quite some time, or words to that effect. It was so long ago that I've done the show live. I've forgotten, but no one likes having it pointed out when they repeat themselves. But I was obviously saying that every month, and I meant it every time I said it, but it's embarrassing to have it pointed out. But Sam has been in touch because I've apparently got a new catchphrase, which, again... I now realise I do in these lockdown editions, which is, when <laughs> I tell people I've kept them longer than I said I would, which in today's uh, interview with Mandy Rhodes, even though I did keep her longer than I said I would, because of that email, I was like, don't say it, don't say it, because, I don't know, it, it, as a listener I imagine it drives you mad, you go, oh, I was going to say that again. Um, I don't know, I'm putting myself in your shoes maybe I'm overthinking this Um, anyway Sam has a constructive feedback on this he says, I'm not sure if you do merch but if you do, how about this Matt Ford, keeping politicians much longer than he said he would since 2013 now this podcast has never done merch maybe it's an underexplored avenue so if you would like political party merch, any ideas you've got, whether it be mugs, tote bags, and indeed what those mugs and tote bags, I was going to say mouse mats, I'm not even sure they're required anymore, Um, then let me know politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Um, today's guest is Mandy Rhodes, managing editor of Holyrood magazine. And listeners to this show in Scotland will be aware of Holyrood magazine. If you're not, you can subscribe to it, no matter where you live. I've put a link to it in the blurb. It's a brilliant magazine. It's a fortnightly look at Scottish politics and policy and all sorts of things. Mandy also has her own podcast, Politically Speaking, under the Holyrood banner, and that's brilliant as well. But... I wanted to talk to Mandy about the Committee on the Scottish Government Handling of Harassment Complaints. And the reason I asked Mandy to come on was it is so difficult to talk about the work of that committee and the wider political context of it without being partisan so i didn't want a politician on to talk about it because i just thought it would be now of course everyone has political leanings everyone has political prejudices and you you can never really fully take them out but i wanted to have as fair a discussion and exploration of the issues around it as possible because it's a really serious committee doing really serious work uh, and we talk about all the angles of some of the elements now you know it if you've been following the story at all it's a kind of a, it's a bit of a sprawling mess because it involves so many different threads and avenues and i try and cover the ones that i think are the key ones so we move about a bit because inevitably once you start to describe one thread it interferes with another and then we have to go back just to consider other things because i genuinely do want to try and discuss it and understand it as fairly as possible, on all sides. So, I hope you find this useful, because I haven't heard anywhere else, really, a full explainer of... Because there are so many different contexts to this, that I'm not going to go into here, because they will unfold um, in the interview. So we try and explore every... Try and open every door as, as best we can in the time that we have, and try and do that as dispassionately as possible, because I just didn't think it would be appropriate to have a politician on, because this thing is so political that I didn't think it would be helpful because, as I say, I haven't really seen a a full explainer that is dispassionate as possible about what's going on. I just thought, I know I would find that useful, and then by extension, I thought uh, that you would as well. Um, So, uh, as I say, Mandy is uh, a a brilliant journalist and gives uh, this is just so good for the context, for the ethical considerations about it and for her as a journalist and for her as a female journalist in Scotland covering this stuff, it's really interesting to get her take on it and um, just the the pressures on her and uh, as a professional, the pressures perhaps that she puts on herself. It's a really difficult story to cover and to talk about as apolitically as possible. Um, But this is... Mandy is brilliant at taking us through every element of this and giving us the detail and giving us her insights and and tells what is going on really really well so uh, this was just a joy to um record in the context of it being about a pretty grim subject overall um it's just really interesting and mandy just explains it all so well um so i began by starting at the start and Asking Mandy about the committee itself and what it is actually set up to do.
0: <laughs> so, of course, there are two committees. Oh <laughs> so, no! <laughs> yeah. Oh, so almost immediately, I'm sorry. It's just so not simple. But okay, let's start with the committee that uh, I guess the um, the UK, if not the world's media, was all focused on on Friday. So that's a Scottish Parliament committee set up to explore what went wrong, and we can go back into this, but we know it went wrong, into the Scottish Government's handling of um, complaints about harassment against the former First Minister, Alex Salmond. So this committee is set up a group of MSPs, cross-party, although we can also come back onto that because it becomes more complicated, to explore what went wrong, which ultimately cost the taxpayer upwards of uh, five and a half, uh, sorry, 500,000 pounds. So we already know that that is the case so uh,
1: and, and and just just to give the detail on that this was uh, uh, the effectively the botched handling of the scottish government's case against salmon that he then challenged in the courts yeah and 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 at the root of this and I, I, am i wrong is that the government continued to pursue that even though they knew they would lose and that in itself is controversial
0: Right. So there's a couple of things within that, which uh, will then lead to more complication this week. So uh, if we just take it back, I guess, to the very basics, 2017 Me Too movement, um, there was, uh, I don't know if "clamor" is the right word, but there was a need to look at all institutions and how they handled particular cases or complaints of harassment and the Scottish Government was no different, that's the civil service arm of the Scottish Government rather than the political side. So civil servants looked at their processes, they already had a complaints process as any organisation would have and in fact Alex Salmond, the former First Minister, had established a very good HR process and um, it was called fairness at work and that was a particular procedure. The Scottish government then decided that they wanted to make it much more explicit about sexual harassment. uh, And that was encouraged by Whitehall because Whitehall was doing the same, looking at their own procedures. Controversially, the Scottish government decided to include in that retrospective complaints and include ministers, both former and current. And we now know that Whitehall was saying, well, we're not really in agreement with this idea of um, former ministers being included within a complaints process. You know, as an employer, I can understand that. What jurisdiction would I have over somebody that had left the building, if you like? But anyway, the Scottish Government did include it um, and two complaints came forward against uh, the former First Minister, Alex Salmond. Now, the bits within that that are even more complicated are, um, according to reports, the First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, who used to be Alex Salmond's deputy um, and is now the current First Minister, signed off in that process. Where it all becomes mired in he said, she said, etc., etc., is, is about timings around that, um, but in terms of the legal process, Alex Salmond um, took his, the government he used to lead to court under a judicial review to look at whether or not that process, that retrospective process, was in fact legal and it was deemed not, although it didn't actually go the full course through the court, if you like, because the Scottish government ceded the case, they conceded it and um, and and the case was collapsed before it got to that point. What's now at the heart of that is, was the legal advice given to the government, basically, that they shouldn't go ahead with this uh, legal case, which then cost the taxpayer half a million pounds and has led us to where we are now? This week in Parliament, uh, there will be a vote of no confidence in the Deputy First Minister, who is John Swinney, on not releasing that legal advice and that's been a kind of sore that's been running now for a number of months the government had refused to release what advice they were given
1: given that that's at the centre of this committee's work how can the committee reach a conclusion without that advice being released
0: yeah, well, it's, again, you know, I'm going to keep saying this throughout this interview. Much more complicated than that. That's one element, absolutely one element. Um, and I guess you could say, you know, as you've just said, absolutely fundamental. We wouldn't be sitting here today had, although there's a whole load of questions within this, that had the complaints process been lawful and carried out properly, um, we then wouldn't have a committee set up to discover why it had gone wrong, but I think it raises many other questions. Had the process been lawful, had the Scottish government uh, handled that complaints process, my questions would be: what What could the possible outcome of that have been? You know, you're still left with a complaint about somebody that has left the building. What? what would a positive outcome have been so i mean you know for me if i was sitting on the committee i would probably be asking the first minister nicola sturgeon that very question what could you have hoped to have given these women these complainants um in terms of a positive outcome anyway but anyway (laughs) the um process was deemed unlawful tainted with bias is what the judge said um alex sammond won £600,000 in terms of legal costs to him the committee was set up that was where we get to now so the Scottish, the parliament committee was set up almost in haste in a way I, I you know I would say um, and cross-party agreement including from the SNP that it should be exploring what went wrong so that is not a retrial, because we haven't even touched on that, of Alex Salmond and his behaviour. It is absolutely about the Scottish government's behaviour and what it got wrong. Nicola Sturgeon heads that government, so she has to answer for that. And it's also about the civil servants and advisers that work for her and what they may or may not have done wrong. So the focus is there, but obviously it's become a focus on Alex Salmond.
1: Yes. Given that that committee was set up in haste, did they make any mistakes early on? You know, should, has there anything that you've, is there anything that you've seen that, you know, sometimes when things are done quickly, the remit isn't established properly, or they don't think about the terms of reference properly, or they don't spend the right time on the right areas? Has setting that committee up in haste had any unintended consequences?
0: I I think possibly, you know, we're all talking with um, hindsight here. I think it was probably the wrong committee to set up. I think what people see now is that um, potentially uh, a a judge led inquiry would have been the right thing to do where evidence could be tested in private. Um, I mean, this committee is so high. So the bit that we haven't gone into yet Matt, is what followed from although there's an argument about whether it followed from or was the cause of or um, because the Scottish Government were going to lose this judicial review, the complaints that had been made and the report that had been put together was leaked to the Daily Record, almost on the night that everything coalesced, if you like. So the Daily Record ran with a story about the former First Minister being um, investigated for these uh, harassment complaints. What followed then was a police investigation. Um, which was huge and extensive. I mean, I, to give you an idea, I mean, it was it was enormous and uh, you know, hundreds of people were interviewed during that process. Um, and he was ultimately charged with 13 counts of um, assault, varying from attempted rape to um, other things within that uh, gamut, if you like. But he was cleared. There was a criminal case. He was cleared. And this was against nine women. So there were other women that had come forward during that exercise. He was acquitted and, um, and a, a free man. Um, I think for lots of people, that was not the expected outcome. And I probably would go as far to say that people within my business, within the media, um, had invested a lot of attention and time believing that that was going to be the case. And that would have been the slam dunk. He'd have been in prison. Scottish government would have absolutely been seen as a beacon of progressive uh, policies around the Me Too movement. First Minister would have been standing up for women, et cetera, et cetera. That is not what's happened. And um, I think a parliamentary committee that clearly has to end up being political because politicians... political um, has meant that there has been a bit of a retrial of Alex Salmond and I think where we all feel uncomfortable and you know I absolutely have always believed that uh, anonymity was an important issue within um, cases of sexual assault or alleged sexual assault. I think the difficulty in this is it's also meant you can't properly scrutinize what has happened here for various reasons but it means that the committee is a bit high bound by that anonymity everybody else is um and it makes it a very uncomfortable situation really and and you know and it's always remembering that there are women in this those two women that are and it's This is the other difficulty, and I feel uncomfortable. as a woman sitting here saying this to you, but this committee is not really about the women. It's not, you know, it's a bit like, I suppose, a murder case where the dead person and the dead person's family are of no import, really, to the forensic analysis of what's happened in a case and trying to find um, who's responsible. And the two women that were the original complainants and the Scottish government complaints process are the only ones that perhaps should be of concern for the committee to make sure that this kind of thing doesn't happen again that the government is not responsible for botching a complaints process again
1: and when you say it's not about the women you don't say that mournfully as in we're not looking in the right area you mean quite correctly this is a committee to look at uh, effectively an internal process and This isn't a a, a retrial. This isn't about whether he did a particular thing to a particular person. This is about establishing the proper boundaries of the work of these people.
0: Completely. So for me, you know, everybody's got a... a, a, Scottish politics, as you know, is a very febrile place. (laughs) Doesn't take much. But also it's, it's become a very binary place so you're either for somebody or against somebody you're for something or against something this has become you're against Alex Almond or you're for Nicola Sturgeon which is um, a bizarre proposition you know all I'm interested in is what the Scottish Government did and and why it got something wrong Um, and that should be important to everybody and I think what's happened as we've gone through this is that there's a feeling that there's a lot more going on, that there's uh, the institutions themselves aren't working properly. And that was reinforced, I guess, by, um, you know, the, there's no doubt Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmond are the two biggest figures, um, certainly in Scottish politics, but, you know, arguably in UK politics. They took together as a very, very successful working partnership and friendship, if you like, took Scotland to the brink of independence he is an enormous figure and I think um, you know as as I I guess I originally didn't believe that there was a rift between them but quite clearly there is now absolutely um, a huge island animosity and part of me also feels if you were in Alex Salmon's shoes, you'd be doing what he's doing. He's got nothing left to lose anymore. Um, he he hasn't called the shots in terms of the timetable. I mean, lots of people are saying, why is he doing this? Why is he trying to harm the SNP? Why is he trying to harm the independence movement? That's what he's lived and breathed all his adult life. He didn't choose the timetable. The committee did. <laughs> you know, that, He's appearing before the committee at their request. Um, And I think inevitably the focus becomes on him and it becomes on Nicola.
1: Well, that's the human drama at the centre of this, isn't it? And in politics, those things are fascinating, whether it's Blair and Brown or, you know, Thatcher and Howe. Salmond and Sturgeon, even closer than Blair and Brown. And it's, you know, in a way, it's it's a very different form of rift that's opened up between them two. Very different sorts of allegations about the behaviour on both sides. So it's impossible, really. And this is why I wanted to get you on, because getting a politician on, in a way... to talk about the details of this would have been inappropriate because if you're trying to talk about it as dispassionately and non-politically as possible, everyone brings their own thing to it. But anyone listening to this, you and I bring our own views of Salmon, of Sturgeon, of independence, of the timetable of it. You know, it, it is impossible for the lay reader not to put onto this, well, I kind of prefer Alex Salmon to Nicola Sturgeon or the other way around or whatever it is. and And that... These things don't exist in a vacuum, and I guess to some extent that that plays out. Now, what that means for Salmond, I guess, is that people, as you say, question why on earth, when it feels as if this movement that, I mean, if you take it back to pre-2014, was polling at, what, 20-odd percent support for Scottish independence. Now it looks as if, though, Scottish independence is on the brink. We're having elections, apparently, in a, just a few weeks' time that will, again, apparently confirm the Scottish public's desire for that. Where it ranks in the list of priorities is another matter, but support for the SNP is high. It feels as if, though, just at the point of maximum opportunity, this guy who was, until Nicola Sturgeon, the biggest star in the independence movement, is prepared to effectively crash the car, and if salvaging his reputation is a price worth paying for not delivering independence, then so be it. I mean, is there any truth to that, do you think?
0: No, I I, I don't, because I would go back to the fact. So what's he meant to do? So there's a committee. He's being asked to be in front of it, compelled, if you like, to be in front of it. In fact, Nicola Sturgeon said if he won't appear, he should be compelled to be in front of it. You know, sometimes you get what you wish for. But I, um, you know, he, I don't think he can redeem his reputation really. I mean, his behaviour... So his behaviour was absolutely not criminal. He is an innocent man. Um, His behaviour was not appropriate. Some of the behaviour that was admitted to was not appropriate. Um, But certainly, you know, the man could have been in prison, Matt, for a very long time. And um, is he meant to just sit back now and just say nothing? I mean, I think... It's been. I think what was interesting was he appeared on Friday. There's been. um, You can throw squirrels around or spot squirrels, throw cats on the table, whatever. Magpies, I think it was. Yes, it was Magwell, and well, we'll get onto that bit in a minute. But um, so there's all this talk about a conspiracy. Was there a conspiracy to get Alex Salmond? Was there a conspiracy by people within the SNP to get Alex Salmond? Now, you can overblow that to make it sound so ridiculous that he's obviously a fool and you're a fool to believe it. Um, He was very careful on Friday not to use the word conspiracy, whereas Nicola Sturgeon is now using the word conspiracy. Now, you know, you, you, you can question both of those kind of, if you like, tactics. He appears to believe that there were malicious moves within people, uh, among people within the SNP to, if you like, throw out a net to, to bring in more information, to build a case against him. Um, now, the, the, <laughs> the complex nature of that is Nicola Sturgeon's married to the chief executive of the SNP. So we have a party that's been in government for 14 years, sometimes led by Alex Salmond, with a deputy of uh, Nicola Sturgeon, now led by Nicola Sturgeon. You have her husband, who's the chief executive of the party. There's questions about... um, When she met Alex Salmond, was she meeting Alex Salmond as the leader of the party and uh, a former friend and a prodigy of his? Or was she meeting him on government business? And this is where it could lead to whether or not she... uh, The question of whether she keeps her job happens or not. Because it's about lying to Parliament about those meetings.
1: The bit I don't understand about that is... If You're first minister. There's never a point in the day when you're not first minister. If you're meeting someone as first minister, it is always government business, you are always representing the state you lead. I don't, what's the defense there?
0: Well, the other bit in there is that you're also first minister when you're chatting to your husband in the kitchen, having a cup of coffee, and um, her husband, Peter Morrow. And this is, you know, Scotland is so small. I mean, we all know that, you know, I know these people very well and, and have different reasons for meeting Peter, you know, because we, we would be doing party conference fringes as um, as Holyrood and dealing with him as the chief executive, dealing with her as the first minister and then as the leader of the party. And, you know, one of the things that Peter Murrell, Nicola's husband, has tried to argue is that when Alex Salmond was at their house he presumed he was there on government business. So he didn't go and ask, you know, what are you doing in my kitchen, Alec? (laughs) You know, so there are things that I think lots of people have listened to the evidence during this committee session and gone, I don't quite get that. You know, do you say to your husband, "Oh, now this morning while we're having tea, I'm um, the leader of the party uh, or I'm your wife or I'm... uh, the leader of the Scottish government. You know, I mean, it's very complex. And Scotland is small. We all kind of know each other. There's a separation by not very much with most people. And um, right now, it feels smaller than ever.
1: And how difficult have you found that to navigate? You run Holyrood magazine, which is effectively the the trade mag for Scottish politics. Yeah. As you say, you know these people really well. You know people in all parties really well. It's a small place. The benefit of that is that it's a friendly and informal place. People feel approachable. Behind the scenes, it can often be a far less severe place than it looks on telly. And that's all really positive stuff. Obviously, the other side of it is you're then put in a situation where, I mean, maybe friendship is too strong a word, but you're then having to hold to account and challenge people that you have personal affection for and you feel sort of humanly invested in. I mean, it must be so
0: difficult for you to do your job. That's um, hugely hard you know i mean you have to have a long memory to remember when scottish labour was in was in was in power but um you know as things started to go wrong for labour in scotland and labour had had a strong you know had had a hold over scotland at all levels of governance for a very long time and i can remember starting to write stories in 2004, 2005, criticising Labour and uh, I can certainly remember some pretty rough times for me at UK <laughs> party conferences where, you know, a number of Scottish Labour MPs and MSPs were particularly nice to me about what I was saying. And I, and I think they saw it as you being a turncoat, that you'd been a friend and you weren't being a friend. And I think I'm experiencing absolutely the same at the moment. But I think the difference is with the SNP, they've been in in opposition for a very long time. So in the media, people like me, I mean, I've been, you know, I've known Alex Zalman for 30 years. I mean, he'll say, oh, I remember Mandy when she was still almost like um, a trainee graduate when I was actually a full-blown journalist. But never mind. Um, You know, I've known them for a very long time. And in opposition... They got to know the media really well, um, then in power, and they've now been in power for 14 years. And I think for a lot of that time, they were doing a very good job. And, uh, you know, I watch Nicola Sturgeon now, and I would hate to be in her shoes. I mean, I've the most utmost respect for um, the work she puts in and the way she articulates things, but I'm writing very critical columns at the moment, and um, I've had some you know, fairly difficult conversations with some people.
1: And you also see
0: the stuff I get on Twitter. Yes, which I see is the to, stuff you get on Twitter. At uh, a different horrible. level. Yeah. Uh-huh. But, you know, I, what I would also say is I've also had a lot of very, very supportive private conversations with people who are also very close to the political leadership who are concerned about how things are looking at the moment. So we're in this bizarre situation where the SNP are still... Absolutely unassailable in terms of um, the polling. Um, There was a poll came out yesterday that still puts them ahead. Uh, It looks as if they'll get a majority in a parliament again, second majority in a parliament that was not designed to do that. Um, Independence kind of stalled a bit. And also this poll was done before Alex Hammond's appearance on Friday. And there was another poll that came out a couple of days before that that was showing that there is an effect. It is. I, I think the issue is a lot of this was not cutting through to the mainstream. It's complicated. People aren't interested. They want to know something pretty f- quickly. And this was complicated. You could feel people turning off.
1: And Covid's happening.
0: Covid's happening. And every day Nicola Sturgeon has got up and um, talked at the daily briefing, which, you know, again has um, critics as well um but my god you wouldn't want to be doing her job would you
1: (laughs) no not at all no i can't think of a single politician I'd, i'd swap places with at the moment or indeed outside of a crisis and that's why i have so much respect for politicians of all parties there's another there's another element to this isn't there you mentioned it early on is is me too so people bring their own views to this about and as you say the polling kind of reflects that is the salmon story then affects how some people will affect feel about scottish independence now on the face of it, that's absolutely logical. Equally, you go, well, it's not, they're two very different questions. Equally, the other lens that people will, will see this through is about men and power and women. How difficult is it for you? I mean, you've described how difficult it is for a journalist to, to have friends in the nationalist movement, to have those difficult conversations in private. How difficult is it for you as, as a woman, as a prominent, successful female journalist in Scotland to navigate this story?
0: Hmm. um I don't I don't actually think it matters that I'm a woman I you know I'm also married to a nationalist I'm married to someone that has tried to stand a number of times for the SNP and again I become diminished by people as being Doug's wife which is uh, bizarre you know he gets called Mr Rhodes which I think is much more interesting um I I Honestly, as a, I, what I find is, I'm what I said to you at the beginning. I find bits of this as a woman uncomfortable because I find myself not necessarily going. Anything a woman says has to be true. true. I mean, I think there are bits in all of this that are difficult. Um, I've criticized, you know, there are particular things, I think Nicola Sturgeon will appear on Wednesday in front of the committee and what she will do is talk about the fact that she's a woman defending women. And it will all, and I am fed up of hearing that. You probably heard her talk, say that on Sophie Ridge, for instance, a while back about here we are, it's the old age, age old thing, a man gets accused of bad behavior and a woman ends up taking the rap. That's not true. This is her government that is under scrutiny. And there are a number of things in that that have bothered me. We have um, a woman that's permanent secretary, that's the most powerful civil servant in Scotland. We have a woman first minister, um, her chief of staff is a woman and she's under scrutiny as well. And almost all of the witnesses, in fact, there's a majority that are very senior women in all of this. They have let women down, you know. So we know that the permanent secretary um, didn't didn't um, offer these women originally any the mediation process that Alex Salmond had put forward. Now some people could say, "Oh yeah, that would have been in Alex Salmond's interests to have something dealt with through mediation." Well, actually, it's a fairly normal hr process you know that you at least don't. but they took the agency away from the women they didn't offer that to the women um they went the permanent secretary took these complaints to the um not to the police but to the crown who and then there was a police investigation against the wishes of the women there is a a contested claim at the moment which will be tested i presume this week that the name of a complainant was given to someone close to Alex Salmond ahead of the case being understood and made formal. So there are questions to be answered by this government, this government that Nicola Sturgeon leads, about how they let women down. So I don't know if that answers your question, but all I've tried to do is kind of stand back and say, would I have Reported this in exactly the same way, had it been a male first minister, a male permanent secretary, and I would. It's still about how women were treated. And um, if you want equality as a first minister, then you also have to be questioned in the same way that you'd be questioned if you were a man.
1: On Alex Salmond, then, because obviously part of his defense at the time was that he's no angel and all the rest of it. And that that doesn't sit right. Obviously, it, he's not been convicted of anything criminal, but in the court of public opinion, in the era of Me Too, it doesn't sit well with people. They go, well, actually, it, it's not just about whether things were criminal. It's about the culture that you presided over when you were at the top of not just a party, but a country. That makes people feel uneasy, doesn't it? Is, is that cut through in the polling? I mean, is Alex Salmon still popular in Scotland?
0: Well, I, th- um, I think the polling that came out yesterday was asking if he was first minister or if she was who would, would you want him as first minister or her as first minister and he was something like 12 percent and she was you know something ridiculous he hasn't been in politics for quite a long time so I think there's still a following for him um and I think Friday was interesting because lots of people thought he would come in and be all bluff and bluster and um you know we would all walk away from it going, "Oh God well a... <laughs> let's close the door on that one he was uh, he reminded us, I guess of how statesmanlike he could be. He was very focused um, gave an extremely good account of himself. And they, I think what it reminded people is because they kept talking, you know, the committee would ask him questions and he could talk about um, processes he'd introduced, uh, laws he had introduced, things that had been passed while he was the first minister. Um, and it, you were reminded that, yes, he was an incredible politician and he was an incredible leader and. Um, and, uh, you know, I I don't know what to say about it. I mean, I, behaviours. How many politicians would stand the scrutiny that he has had to withstand, I guess? Um, probably the most investigated uh, politician in terms of his behaviours, and he's been in the public um. his profile's been there for 30 odd years I'm not excusing his behavior in any way and this is the way that this becomes that if you start to even raise some doubts about things that are being said you're seeing as a salmon apologist and I'm absolutely not I mean I've written columns where I've said I think his behavior was dreadful um his behaviour is as dreadful as many I've encountered myself. And I just, um, you know, treating him as a politician that's gone through a criminal case and being cleared.
1: I wonder as well, just while we're on social attitudes and polling, how far... What's the gap between where the SNP are and things like Me Too and the Scottish public? Because I think the Scottish government is very good at... um, Often being ahead on certain things, and certainly Scotland as a political class, um, think of Monica Lennon's uh, bill on on period poverty. Where are the Scottish public on things like me too? Uh, uh, Scotland, historically, quite a socially conservative country. Are people as animated about it? There, I mean, I guess I'm not trying to second guess the jury, but I just wondered. You know, when we got that verdict, I, I just wondered if Scotland as a country was quite ready to even have that conversation yet quite apart about you know whether alexander was guilty or innocent and as you say you know uh, he was found not guilty and not proven i just wonder if the scottish public are as hot on me too stuff as as perhaps the SNP are. oh
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I i mean I, you know at the end of the day a criminal um, trial and a jury were looking at the legality or otherwise of someone's behavior I mean I'm not sure the attitudes about me too me too would have come into to that I mean I have to say Matt that I was probably one of the few that when I mean I was shocked by the length and breadth of the charge sheet if you like um but I never believed he would um go to prison I didn't I felt most of the and again, this is where you feel uncomfortable because no matter how much um you know there are uh, there are people hurt by whatever has happened here, and um but I didn't think the most of the charges should have been things that would have ended up in a high court
1: we're leaping it all over the place here, but there are certain things that I just want to make sure that we we, we tie up so just. On the establishment of the committee, I know we're sort of rewinding yeah, yeah. That and the, that was done in haste and um, you know, the wisdom of having that instead of a judge-led inquiry. Does this committee existing and, and doing its work in this way prevent a separate judge-led inquiry or is that still possible?
0: I think that's still possible and um, the other thing we haven't mentioned is that I said at the beginning there's a second committee as well a second inquiry. So I, um, I actually, I was interviewing her about something else, but we ended up talking about this naturally. But the convener of this committee, uh, Linda Fabiani, who is SNP, and she, in fact, was a minister under Alex Hammond and has been a deputy presiding officer, which is like the speaker in um, Scotland compared with Westminster. And. Um, She said to me last week that she felt that they would be able, the committee, this committee, would be able to find on some things. So they would be able to look at how the government did handle um, the complaints and what they got, some of what they got wrong. Um, They may be able to look at where the First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, may have breached the ministerial code and they may be able to make some assessment of that. But I think what's going to come out of it is a whole load of other questions. Um, now, some of that may be solved this week because the if there is a vote, um, I, I said earlier that there, there's going to be a vote of no confidence with the Deputy First Minister, John Swinney, about the withholding of the legal advice. Now, it may be that the legal advice gets released this week and we discover that what what I think people assume is the case is that the legal advice was don't go ahead with this case and the Scottish Government decided to do it anyway, so there'll be repercussions of that. Um, And so, so basically, I think they were always the committee was always going to be limited um, in what it could do and how it was constrained by legal issues around the anonymity of people in the in the criminal case and some of the the evidence that came forward during the criminal case. I mean, I think what people, particularly um, commentators from down south, as they woke up to what was happening here, and it wasn't just a kind of sturgeon salmon psychodrama they haven't understood why the journalists up here just haven't been able to print whatever they want given the evidence that came out during the criminal trial and we haven't been able to because there's been a really um, prohibitive um, legal constraint you know about jigsaw identity of any of the women involved in the case so it's become basically we're sitting with if you like, a story um, that we can't really report in full or scrutinise properly because we're unable to.
1: And when you say jigsaw identification, that means people could sort of piece it together using yeah. different bits of information.
0: Yes, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Not that you would and, explicitly and the,
1: reveal the identity.
0: No, and they have. And, um, you know, social media has meant that there are a number of people who there was a man imprisoned last week for having identified one of the... Um, the complainants
1: and that legal constraint on you now presumably at some point that passes i mean it's really interesting this because lifelong right so
0: (laughs) So that could be challenged i think you know at some point somebody may just challenge it and i I think the other (laughs) It's very hard. I mean, we do know the identity of all the women, and um, you know, some of the conspiracists would say if that was known by the rest of the public, you might question some of what what has gone on. But we have to be within the law. I, I mean, I think I think the interesting thing on, if we just go back to the committees, I, I you know I said to you there's a second committee, and this is where it gets a bit political a geekery if you like and it's where the public probably lose interest there's a question mark over two dates of when Nicola Sturgeon met Alex Salmond and when she first knew about any of the complaints and you're talking about a matter of four days and the reason that matters is because it would mean that Nicola Sturgeon either lied or misled parliament and if she did that knowingly, uh, it would normally be a breach of the ministerial code and normally it would be a resignation matter. You know, we live in a democratic society. The idea that a part uh, the leader of a government would lie to parliamentarians is a a sacking matter, if you like, or a resignation matter. Um, So, that matters there's a separate inquiry right now being led by an independent person James Hamilton who is examining whether or not the ministerial code was breached and that's all being done in private um he's already interviewed Nicola Sturgeon I think he's interviewing Alex Salmond this week um he may come to a completely different point
1: What seems odd about the dates, those conflicting dates, around when Nicola Sturgeon claims she first knew is there was a story about Alex Summon's behaviour at Edinburgh Airport in 2009. So I don't... I don't don't want to get either of us into legal difficulty, but that alone seems to completely undermine both dates.
0: Well, I don't... I mean, you know, I can... (laughs) hand on heart, Matt, say to you, I didn't know about that date. There's a lot of rewriting of history at the moment. A lot of people saying, oh, I always knew about Alex Salmond's, you know, touchy-feely behaviour, if you like. I'm sorry, I didn't. I've known him for a very long time. I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying he doesn't behave inappropriately. He clearly does. You know, we heard that during the court case. Um, He admitted to not being an angel. I... I'm not dealing in gossip, really. I mean, uh, which sounds ridiculous for me because so much of my job is about gossip. But um, I need fact. Um, I don't know. Could someone say anything about your behaviour in 2003? <laughs> Whatever. Um, I just, I, I don't know. But, but, but the question, I guess, then, that that leads everybody to is, if there was an understanding about behaviour was Nicola Sturgeon walking about with her eyes and ears shut? Were the other people within the leadership of the party walking? I mean, I think there is a bit of a phenomenon of that within politics. I'm not talking about this in particular, but people perhaps don't want to see or hear things that might mean they have to confront something. And I'm sitting here saying, I hadn't heard anything, you know, and um, if people think that's naive, fine. But I mean, I'm constantly being asked, as a woman in journalism, who was dealing with this person? Um, Surely I must have been aware of uh, that. No, I wasn't.
1: And on the committee, it's impossible to take politics out of it because you have a committee led by an SNP politician with an SNP majority. The danger of putting these inquiries through committees like that is what loyal SNP, MSP in their right mind, is going to vote anything other than a long party interest line. So then, in a way, Justice, before you've heard any evidence, we know the outcome of any vote on that committee. It completely undermines it.
0: I think um, it's shone a light on the fact that the Scottish Parliament, I mean, I think, in a way, Alex Salmond was alluding to this, but... This committee has, it's an extraordinary committee. It's an extraordinary time. You wouldn't expect, hopefully, that we ever have to go through this again. But um, it's it shone a light on the limited nature of the powers of the parliament. And, you know, an example of that was, um, so anything that the committee discusses or interrogates with any of the witnesses that they bring forward, you can they can only use the information that legally they've been allowed to publish on their website. And there's lots of arguments about, are they being too timid? Are the clerks being too timid? Are the parliament's lawyers being too timid? But they had Alex Salmon's evidence, 26 pages of it, and it went public. The Spectator magazine, because they challenged... um, challenged particular legal constraints and also a pro-independence blogger, already had Salmon's evidence published and had been published for, I think, about a month. Parliament put it up on their website. The Crown Office um, objected, threatened them, threatened the Parliament, basically, with contempt of court, and it was removed and redacted. Some people would say the Parliament should have just said, on your bike. We're the parliament, we're the democratic institution, and we believe that this should be seen. Um, but they didn't. They took it down, redacted it, uh, and it meant that Salmond couldn't speak to certain things. So his point was, and this is what caused his delay in appearing, how could he take an oath to tell the truth and nothing but the truth if he wasn't allowed to discuss things that he'd said were the truth? I mean... It, this is why none of it's easy, Matt. But it's—I um, think for me—and I, I, you know, I recognise um, start, I start—I get emotional about it. I do actually just start to think that we're losing some of our integrity. So out of all of this, I worry about the institutions. People will all move on with their reputations damaged or not damaged or redeemed slightly or not. But we have a parliament that's really important. And, you know, you were talking about polls and the Scottish Parliament and devolution has consistently polled among the Scottish public as being really important to it. You know, my son has not grown up without any other thing than the Scottish Parliament being there. And this is, it's damaging it.
1: And let's just discuss the Crown Office then. How... Oh, God. (laughs) Well, just (laughs) his role in this. How independent is it?
0: I think, so the Lord Advocate, who heads the Crown Office, is a political appointee. And I think that's the other question in all of this. Um, Whether Lord Wolfe, who is the Lord Advocate, and he's appearing, I think, in front of the committee again tomorrow and has questions to answer, I you know he he keeps saying he's recused himself or taken himself out of some of the decision making in this and that he wasn't the process, he wasn't involved in the salmon criminal case etc etc but i think probably people are feeling a little bit uncomfortable about the relationship and the closeness given that scotland is so small anyway of government crown parliament media everything And, you know, there's an added complication at the moment, (laughs) because there would be because it's Scotland, um, that there's a a malicious prosecution that has gone through surrounding Rangers Football Club, which was, uh, you know, so, so there's already question marks, if you like. You know, to politics, ranges football. It's just, you know, ah! Um, there's already question marks about the workings of the Crown Office because of that. Well, so, uh, it <laughs> feels like we need to clear
1: out. <laughs> I mean, what's funny about it is, of all the things... <laughs> That could have been a side issue, like Rangers. <laughs> like, even the non political stuff is so uh-huh. politically sensitive. Yeah. Obviously, to, to ears and eyes south of the border, or perhaps elsewhere, because it's called the Crown Office. You know, it it it's, um, sounds. Le- you know, it sounds like sort of uh, an independent legal thing that you would hear in a high court thing. You know, the, the the crown believes the defendant is this, that, and the other. Yeah, 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 yeah. But obviously, if it's headed by a political appointee, the the very title of the crown office lends a kind of the the impression of independence when perhaps it's not fully independent, and that's difficult. Well,
0: yeah, I think that you know the prosecution service, which sits under that. Uh, I don't think anybody is, uh, not least Alex Hammond, is is saying uh, is wrong, um, you know. So the it, people, I don't think there's that suggestion at all. But I think, I guess this has just shone a light on lots of other things that perhaps it not mattered at other times, but all of a sudden, and part of it is to do with 14 years in government, but. I think, you know, I can remember I can remember when Nicola Sturgeon became first minister and a conversation about the fact that her husband was was the chief executive and whether, you know, and I think she at that point was under pressure from people saying, look, this doesn't sit right, doesn't look right. It means too much power is kind of centralised. And I, at that point, agreed with her that it seemed wrong that a woman was being asked to say to her husband um I think you should just you know go and take another job somewhere else darling this just doesn't work and I guess I kind of agreed with that at that point I, I don't know I think it um, it does feel wrong and maybe it takes an extraordinary situation and circumstance to make everyone go oh yeah this just doesn't feel right power shouldn't sit in one kitchen.
1: <laughs> well, that's it. What's what's right and what's fair and what's politically wise are sometimes two different things.
0: Mm. Yeah.
1: Um, but when you're dealing with someone like Nicola Sturgeon, who seems so politically astute and so political in kind of everything, you know, so sort of feels quite well politically calculated on the whole. I think even her, her adversaries would say that she, she's handy at the political side of it. That seems like such an oversight to have not thought actually, as this goes on, it's unfair on my husband that he should have to give up. And of course, people meet, you know, people have relationships at work. There's nothing wrong in that. Um, there are lots of political couples. <laughs> maybe there is. <laughs> well, maybe there is. Yeah, but in the end, mm. th- this has kind of hit them like a train, hasn't it? Because it's not just about Nicholas Sturgeon and Peter Morrill, It then becomes the crown office and as you say the media and then it's the wider thing that you're not in control of and because you didn't take that piece off the board you've ended up purely by chance in a way creating this impression that it's all a bit too cozy.
0: Yeah and the thing is you know the secret of the SNP and the secret of the SNP's success was that it was all too cozy you know that they did know each other that they all grew up together that there were all these loyalties um, that has started to, I, to to fall apart over many things you know I we've seen the splits you've seen the splits you've seen you know the Joanna Cherry um, stuff and uh, issue discipline kind of just dissipating a little bit which maybe wasn't a bad thing. Um, But I think, you know, I've heard complaints for many, you know, a long time about, well, where do you take complaints about the party to? If the first minister's husband's the chief executive, you know, does she sack him? Uh, you know i, I it becomes can too she? difficult
1: does she have the power really. within the party rules who can Will she sack well i husband?
0: don't I actually don't know what are the rules <laughs> the rules appear to change quite a lot but i yeah I don't know who sacks the chief executive um but there's a, it, it goes back to that issue of perception doesn't it apart from anything um so perception was one thing but then when you're faced with the situation we've now got yeah I'm quite sure she must think hush. Oh, Wish we'd done something about this a bit earlier.
1: I want to come back to the uh, to Joanna Cherry and the NEC in a sec, but just while we're just while the Crown Office is fairly fresh in our minds,
0: what moving this... on to smooth things, <laughs> well, <I laughs> easy mean, just, things. I'm
1: aware that I'm hopping about and I, you know, it's no, just so it's bewildering. A, it's life. Yeah, it is. Um, that malicious prosecution of two <laughs> members of staff of Rangers Football Club. Is there? Can you summarise that in a nutshell? What's what's going on there with the Crown Office? No. <laughs> how big a shell also, uh, they,
0: they weren't they weren't members of staff right uh, so, what, so these were happened? auditors uh, well That's right. I, I, and, and you know to my shame matt and i know you love football i can't stand football <laughs> and my husband kept saying to me oh you know for months and months and months you really should be looking at this rangers story and i was going oh i'm not interested in football <laughs> and it's nothing to do with football. It absolutely has nothing to do with football. It's to do with um, accountancy and audit. And um, so, no, I. But it seems. That, no, I can't. I can't <laughs> sum it up. But in
1: short, the Crown Office prosecuted to auditors when they shouldn't have done. Is that kind of.
0: It seems to be the case, and will be shelling out about 25 million <gasps> to them in compensation.
1: While we're talking money, taxpayers' money, <laughs> yeah, obviously yeah, the, the, the the Scottish <laughs> government um, had to pay some, as you say, around £600,000. One of the other elements of this story was the apparent use of taxpayers' money to prepare <laughs> people to appear in front of the committee. Now that, as a headline, sounds appalling, that you're using taxpayers' money to coach people for a committee appearance. Is there another fairer explanation of that? Has that no. been misrepresented?
0: No. There is not a fair explanation. So, these, I, and I actually, this has been another big issue for me, and it, maybe it is a, the geeky thing, but these are senior civil servants. You know, permanent secretaries on, like, oh, I don't know, £170,000 or something. These are eye-watering salaries for people that should be the brightest and best, that are running the administrative arm of government. And... I think I might have this figure slightly wrong by 10 or 20,000, but it was something like 60 or 70,000 pounds paid to um, a consultancy firm to give training for these civil servants to appear in front of a committee.
1: I mean, that feels. Fa- you know what what it was was i try and be as dispassionate about as possible about these things and having worked in politics sometimes the way these things are presented in the media isn't entirely fair and you go well actually that thing always existed and it's only now that people are talking about it they brought these people in specifically to coach these people for this inquiry
0: i think everyone's got a bit concerned about the word coach but um to prepare them for giving good evidence and probably for the firm that was brought in it's good news that we don't know who it was because they completely failed because these civil servants i mean you they know get a they, refund they, they, oh they should get a refund the performance has been um risible really um you know people not remembering things misremembering things having to become come back to the committee to re-establish what they said or to refresh or to to reinvent what they said um just as an insight into the world of the senior echelons of governance, not good. Not good at all.
1: While we're in that sort of area of performance... I'm looking
0: forward to trying to do my next interview with the (laughs) (laughs) perbs, eh?
1: Want me to put this out after that? (laughs) Depends on what that is. (laughs)
0: Um,
1: I watched some of Salmon's evidence on Friday... And whenever you get these moments, and in a way, it doesn't matter what the remit of the committee is. It's Alex Salmond in the Scottish Parliament, the drama <laughs> of that. It's like when Murdoch appeared in front of the select committee in Westminster or Bob Diamond. You know, you think of those moments, yeah. you think, well, this is the Scottish version of that. This is a big beast in front of a committee, some of whom are, you know, would would love to put him to the sword and, and catch him out. And this this game of cat and mouse. In the end... As a, as a spectacle, and obviously it's not there as a piece of entertainment. It's there as a committee with a specific remit, and it has to ask questions. That said, as an advert for accountability, there was something slightly disappointing about it. It, 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 it kind of didn't live up to the billing. Now, maybe that's just because I'm watching it in the way that I watch politics. Sadly, sometimes as a form of entertainment, even when there are sort of grave issues at it, but. It kind of felt a bit underwhelming and it kind of felt a bit, it felt like some members of the committee weren't maybe particularly
0: prepared or, I don't know, I don't know what you felt or, watching. Or over prepared. I mean, I, so <laughs> I I think there's two bits to that. I think uh, most people were assuming that this would be bombastic Alex Salmond. And it wasn't. It was cool, calm, measured Alex Salmond. Wouldn't be drawn on whether or not he thought the First Minister should resign. Um, so I think from Alex Salmond's performance point of view, the I, I think most people think he did an, an incredible job and kind of reminded us of why he had been the leader of the country. Um, so I would disagree that I thought that was underwhelming. I thought he was very good. And I think actually for a man that, you know, clearly has, he's he's asthmatic, he clearly has a chest infection at the moment, blah, blah, blah. Um, You looked at him and thought, my God, I think he could keep going for another six hours. Please, God, no. Um, And, but from the committee's point of view, there were kind of two stars, uh, Jackie Bailey who has been consistently good and forensic and um, you know I can remember saying years ago Jackie Bailey was the one politician that could get under Nicola Sturgeon's skin I would have made her leader some time back and um, she just kept going and she's very cool very calm knows what she wants out of it and Murdo Fraser the Tory MSP who was also very good and um, Actually, I think Linda Fabiani, who's the convener, I think she redeemed herself on Friday. A number of people had felt she had been very poor in terms of, um, in fact, completely the opposite of supporting her party, um, had been kind of more against it, if you like. But I thought she was very good as well on Friday. And the rest, uh, I mean, I thought the SNP members were just terrible. I, I suspect they were just... Given questions to ask, the question would be who gave them the questions, um, and, and yeah, I, I, and what Alec was able to do, which was part of his 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 skill, um, just forensically go through things and answer them, and then refer them back and show them where they would got things wrong. Um, so that that was a bit embarrassing to them.
1: And I'm wary that my instincts sound like they're always on the side of people in power because they're not. But having worked in politics, sometimes, as I say, the way things are presented in the public and the way they actually are, I sometimes feel like governments get a hard time with regards to information and, and perceived secrecy. With John Swinney facing this vote of no confidence for not releasing that legal advice, is on the face of it, you go, well, they're just withholding it because presumably it undermines their case or it makes them look bad. Is there any other reason? You know, sometimes governments don't release advice because it sets a precedent and then they're having to release legal advice and then the the legal advice they get on other areas isn't as good because people give that advice knowing it might be made public. Is there a case, a good case, for why the Scottish government could justifiably keep that information secret?
0: I can't think what it would be other than the precedents. And I, um, I think it's now undermining them. So it's it. I think it's done the damage already. Um, I mean, there's so much out there already um, about the fact that their legal counsel had basically said. I mean, I'm and this is alleged. Had said, um, if you go ahead with this, we'll resign. You know, the the idea that your legal advisors in government would resign because you won't, you want to keep going with something. That you're going to lose is extraordinary. So I, I think the damage has already been done. I, I think no. I think the only surprise would be if the legal advice said, "Oh yeah, we keep going with this. This is we're we're, we're good on for this one." Um, so no, I think the damage has been done, really. And even that. that, even
1: that issue exists in a wider context, doesn't it? About you know, this is all about secrecy and who lets people know what and how do how do the public get the information? How are the powerful held to account? And during at the start of the COVID crisis, uh, the, the Scottish government wanted to suspend freedom of information rules. Now, again, that's the sort of thing that sounds appalling. It, that could just be an over-eager civil servant saying, look, in the interests of God knows what's going to happen. We don't know how this thing's going to play out. Um, some suspension, just as you get suspension of other rules um, and, and the state will, um, you know, compel us to stay in our ha- homes, you know, mm. it, is on the face of it, you go, "Oh right, that's about a wider context of the SNP not liking scrutiny." Again, is there a is there a fairer uh, assessment of, of of that decision?
0: Yes, yeah. I mean, I think absolutely there is, but the the issue now is that there's just all these little bits, as you say, that gives a you know a perception of this is a government that doesn't like scrutiny. I mean, I, my own view about the FOI stuff at the beginning of COVID was. Um, really you're trying to get on with dealing with the pandemic and do you want civil servants bogged down with it wasn't like they were saying nobody can put an FOI and they were extending the length of time and they want to be you know I guess more prohibi- prohibitive about it but um, no I understand that I think it's just that all these little bits of a jigsaw then make up a different picture
1: And what is that big picture then, in in closing? What what are we looking
0: at? I mean, you know, you you kind of alluded to it. The discomfort for me as we're sitting talking about all of this, these are people that um, I will deal with um, all the time. And, you know, there are repercussions for being critical. There are. I, I, I run a business. To have to think about these things, we we depend on ministers speaking at events for us. Um, my relationships are all with these politicians, and and the bottom line is, and I, the difficulty is, this feels, and I've written about this. It feels like the kind of end days of a fag end government. They're about to be elected probably with a majority again in May, and. Um, I, I, that makes it an uncomfortable place to be
1: an uncomfortable place to be what to, to be someone trying to hold them to account.
0: Well, a bit of both. I mean I um, the SNP, I, th- I guess why people find this difficult is when this was happening with labour, when they had that you know hegemony across Scottish governance, the SNP were in opposition, preparing themselves to be a credible government. The opposition is nowhere now. So we have no opposition, um, you know, of that's going to um, challenge the SNP for government, certainly. Um, I mean, I think there are people at the moment that feel one of the best things that could happen in the election, which is in nine weeks time. I mean, our parliament goes into dissolution in three weeks time. And we're sitting talking about a committee that could see the First Minister potentially uh, removed from post. It, it, it's a, all a bit surreal, really. I mean, I, I guess there are people that feel that what that what is necessary for the SNP almost to refresh and remember what it's all about is a period, not in, in opposition, because that's not going to happen but not to get a majority, to potentially not even have enough for a minority, but, you know, will will require other parties to work properly with it. And um, some may also prefer that that wasn't just the Greens because they're a pro-Indy party as well. So, you know, this parliament was meant to be a parliament of parties, of independence, and it really hasn't been.
1: To be fair to the SNP, that's not their fault. You know, Absolutely.
0: Just, Absolutely. It's their success. No one's um, going to
1: try and be less popular. Yeah.
0: yeah. I Absolutely. mean, on the face of it, you
1: could say they're doing everything they can to try and make people not vote for them. Yeah, right, exactly. Want I want return them. You know, that's, but that's, there that's is the no,
0: th- there's no choice, I guess, Matt. You know, normally you would make your dissatisfaction felt by voting for another party, but, but, you know, that's quite difficult in Scotland right now.
1: It is. and Sawa has just become leader of Scottish Labour, so maybe in time, who knows, maybe he doesn't have enough time yet to, to repair that brand. And obviously Labour across the UK is repairing its brand, so that's, that's a sort of double job. That's a UK and a Scottish level. Um, just on the, 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 the timing of, of these elections, and, and Parliament only sitting for another three weeks Is there any sense that the clock is sort of running down and that if the committee can't find in some way for or against Nicola Sturgeon, that then that gets deferred till after the election?
0: Well, I don't. You see, I I think that's the problem. It's not about whether it'll be for or against Nicholas Sturgeon. That it'll be more complicated than that. I mean, there are some things that you could quite, I think, quite comfortably say. We know the Scottish government made a huge mistake. Does that mean the permanent secretary should be should go? And um, that would certainly be a question. is it too close for Peter Murrell to be the chief executive of the party and married to the First Minister of Scotland? Well, we're not asking for them to get divorced. But, you know, those are the kind of questions that I guess could be raised. Um, I I mean, I don't think Nicola Sturgeon, um, I think Nicola Sturgeon will be the leader of the SNP taking the party into the election. Um, what happens after that? I'm not so sure. I think that, you know, if they don't win a majority or it's not as big a win as they think, that may be the time where she says, with everything else going on with the two committees, blah, 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 that she says, actually, it's now time for me to stand back. And then you're left with who takes over.
1: I mean, that does. Purely being dispassionate about it. She is at the peak of her powers. She's by far the most popular politician in Scotland. She's more popular in England than some of the leaders of the national parties. And whatever people might think about her politics or some of her decision-making, she stands as one of the most talented and, and what, certainly one of the most regarded. It doesn't feel, apart from, I mean, obviously you can't take all this out of it, it would seem kind of premature. I mean, do you think she might stand down to deal with this and then come back?
0: I don't know. I mean, I, I think um, I, I interviewed her god this time last year probably and they've run up to her 50th birthday in in june and um she said then that she didn't it must have been just after this because we were in lockdown and she said that she knew even at that stage that she would be a different Nicola sturgeon coming out of this pandemic than she was going in and i think you know we've all this pandemic has changed us all um I don't know. I haven't spoken to her personally recently, but I'm sure it's changed her. Um, I think this whole inquiry, both inquiries, have damaged her. I think there's absolutely no doubt of that. I think her reputation and the government's reputation will have taken a knock with all of this. Um, Yeah. And
1: on the party stuff, because I said I'd come back to the NEC thing, was—I mean, it feels like distant history now, but Joanna Cherry and Angus Robertson both wanted the SNP nomination for Edinburgh Central and close to um, the nomination, w- w- there seemed to be a change in NEC rules. Uh, again, this is one of those sort of subplots about the coziness of power at the top of the party. Uh, again, is there, a, is there a more sympathetic analysis for, for some of that sort of stuff? Or is that just you know, and and I speak for someone who worked for the Labour Party in the Blair and Brown era. Is that just an old fashioned stitch up?
0: Yeah, I, but <laughs> I keep saying this. It's not as simple as that, is it? So really, although um, you could, it looks as if if Joanna Cherry was prevented from standing for selection for Edinburgh Central, she could have still stood. nothing actually prevented it other than they were asking she would have had to have stood down as an MP not knowing whether or not obviously she'd win the seat the SNP don't hold that seat at the moment so her point was she'd be basically putting staff out of a job uh, and everything else not knowing what the future might be now some people might say well you know sorry darling that's politics." but do I think there was a stitch up? Yeah, I don't I don't think. Um, and I, I find this quite hard to understand. Joanna Cherry, whatever her faults in terms of people might find her to, so, too robust for them, if it, being kind, very bright woman who has definitely taken the SNP onto another level in terms of the legal cases. She took around Boris Johnson and proroguing of parliament and also stuff around Brexit. Very bright woman who we need more of in Scottish politics right now. And clearly <laughs> there's uh, an element within the SNP, and I think Nicola Sturgeon included in this, which you know I, I failed to properly understand, doesn't like her you know i i think that's actually a failure of leadership and management that if you have very bright people and you should have brighter people than you working for you i absolutely agree in that but you also should be able to manage them and i think they haven't managed nicola and sorry joanna prodian slip and um and, and she's been painted as the baddie in all of this, and then you have to superimpose, because I'm sure you wanted to get into even more complex <laughs> stuff, is that the whole argument that has surrounded the reform of the Gender Recognition Act. So again, you're put into, and it seems stupid talking about binary issues when you're talking about the Gender Recognition Act, but you're um, trying to put people into a, oh, you're this and you're that, and... Um, So it's all become very complicated and mired in a whole load of rubbish. And is
1: it, I'm just wondering about that that decision. I guess the timing of the rule change was what made it look suspicious, was that it's not illegitimate for the SNP to say, we don't want people in Westminster and Holyrood, but why did they only come to that decision at that point? Does the same rule apply to MSPs and councillors? Can can you be a councillor in the SNP and be in Holyrood as well?
0: Um, I can't remember if they changed that so you couldn't, um, but I think you have to, if you get elected, you then have to stand down. Sorry, Matt, I should probably know the ins. That's no, all right, that, I get it, I, I can't... sort
1: of sprung that on you.
0: Yeah, um, so I, I don't know.
1: I mean, I guess part I was... of the problem, and you hinted at it earlier, was, was who succeeds Nicola Sturgeon in that... Mm. In a way, they, they want to incentivise some of their biggest stars to only be in Holyrood rather than, than be in Westminster because Derek Mackay was meant to be the successor. That's not going to happen. Um, Angus Robertson may be in there after May. He would be perhaps a, a more obvious choice if Nicola Sturgeon goes in the next couple of years. But in terms of the, the SNP's talent in the Scottish Parliament Chamber, I mean, how many big beasts are there that could consider? Well, you see, I her? think
0: it's fascinating that you see Angus Robertson. So, you know, I, I like Angus. Angus is someone that, uh, you know, I socialise with and uh, has been a friend over the years. But it's a Westminster view that you take, that you say that Angus Robertson's the most obvious choice because he's been at Westminster. He's never held a brief in the Scottish Parliament, in Scottish Government. Um, you know, it's a bit like when people used to talk about Ruth Davidson as being the potential first uh, Prime Minister. She never actually run a department. She's never done it. You know, I, so it's superimposing a profile that you've taken from Westminster and then say that could work. I mean, but what you say is right. It's very hard at the moment to work out who would be the natural successor of Nicola Sturgeon. And again, and I've you know written about this a number of times. The idea that you don't have succession planning, which the Labour Party know a lot about, is <laughs> um, it, a failure of leadership again. You know, I mean, was Derek the natural successor? I don't know. There's um, we have a woman who's the finance secretary, Kate Forbes, but she was only elected in 2016. Very bright woman, though. Um you, Yousaf, the Justice Secretary's name is also. But I think if Nicola Sturgeon was to go right now, I think most people would agree that John Swinney, who was former leader of the party. Uh, and in fact, you know, we, when you look back to that time and how difficult it was, and that then led to Alex Salmond coming back as leader, Nicola as his deputy, and um, John Swinney would be the obvious choice as a caretaker leader of the party. Uh, You know, I was just thinking, actually, when I said that about when Alec came back as leader and Nicola as his deputy, I mean, people forget that Nicola would have lost the leadership. You know, she had gone for leadership against Rosanna Cunningham, who was her very good friend, apparently, at that point. Rosanna was going to win that. And, um, you know... Where would we be right now had that happened? Uh, these are, that's the fascinating thing about our politics. It can turn like that.
1: Okay. Let's try and end on a positive note because All right, yeah. um, one of the great events, I think, in politics is your Holyrood Garden Party. Um, and the reason I say that is not just because I host it, <laughs> I have a, a direct interest, but I think I keep a i going to have
0: Jason Leach instead of you, actually. <laughs> He wouldn't be
1: allowed, would he? Um, <laughs>
0: no, he could give us all the injections as we go in the door.
1: <laughs> well, I'll give injections. They just wouldn't be the vaccine. <laughs> They'd um, drugs, wouldn't <laughs> they? <can you? laughs> is, the one thing that I love about that event is, certainly from the outside, Scottish politics can look, even in the tumultuous uh, landscape of British politics, Scottish politics can look particularly animated and difficult and sometimes quite poisonous and nasty and and personal and yet every year there's at least one event which is yours where politicians of all parties sit on tables together they all laugh with each other i just think it's the most uh, one of the most reassuring things i've ever seen and i find it a great comfort whenever i watch these things play out is to think actually i know a lot of these people have their harsh political contentions and that's right that they should play them out because that's what democracy is about but privately, actually, some of these people do get on a, a bit better than you would presume, and that also is a good thing, and that is reassuring. Is that still the case, or has the last year frayed those things um, to the point where it's not? And uh, does that give you the same hope that it gives me, that going forward, whatever happens, politics in Scotland actually is, is pretty healthy?
0: So we haven't told you that this year it's going to be a wrestling match. Oh,
1: my God. <laughs> as long as I'm repping it, I don't mind. <laughs>
0: No, I, absolutely. You know, the as you said, the Garden Party is such a joyous event where people do come together. And obviously, drink helps. Absolutely. <laughs> but, and I think this year, because the election's in May, we'd already decided that the Garden Party would be in September this year. But also, you know, when we started that, I, my main point was this should not be a serious event. This is about the irreverence of sorry, everything that we me. do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's just it's about fun, and that's absolutely what it is. And you know, this year it'll be difficult. There will be a whole new intake of people. I've got to try and persuade people that this is a good thing to do. But I think, do you know what? I think by September we'll all need a party. Oh, not a political one. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, unless it's a political party podcast, Mandy. Absolutely. Thank you so much for taking us through this uh, uh, this delicate difficult uh, conflicting landscape with your with your brilliant expertise it's been a real pleasure thank you
0: Thanks Matt
1: Well there you go Mandy Rhodes and I didn't say this to her because of Sam's email <laughs> I did keep her for longer than I, I said I would. But also, there are so many more, and I realised that this is something. Now that I think about, what do I say every week? That's definitely one of the things. There's so much more we could have talked about, which is always going to be true. But it's always the first thing I think when i finish. finished is, like, oh, we didn't cover that. Um, but there is so much more we could have covered. And I hope that, in a way, that hour or so is just a really good introduction to what's going on and some of the other issues around it. Now, there are entire episodes we could do on just the Crown Office, on the rules of the SNPs and EC, and all sorts of other things, but for now, I think that is as good an explainer as we're going to get. Um, and of course, things may change, and if there are major changes, then perhaps that's something we discuss uh Again, in the future, I have some fantastic guests lined up for the coming weeks. And of course, as we enter um, the local elections, the Hollywood elections, the London elections, which are meant to happen in May, um, I've signed up to vote by post, by the way, and in the blurb, I've put a link. Because if, if we are having elections in May, and apparently we are... Um, I don't know how people feel about going to a polling station. And I, for the life of me, can't understand why there hasn't been a major campaign to get people signed up to vote by post across the UK. In fact, this is an issue for another day, perhaps. I can't believe we don't do more in this country about just promoting voting. We leave it to local elections and people getting their polling cards. All year round, we should be telling people that voting is a good idea. And we don't do that. Well... This podcast will 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 make a, a small dent in that, hopefully. So I've registered to vote by post, um, just in case. Uh, so I've put a link to to that as well. If you're if this is the first time you thought about it, which at the weekend I was like, hang on a minute, these elections are coming down the line. I don't really feel like as a country we've had the discussion about whether people are going to want to go into polling stations in May, uh, and if not, then why aren't we doing a huge? postal vote drive so there we go this is this is my personal postal vote drive um and wherever you live in the uk you can click on that link and it'll take you to the right place um and of course in that link as well as i said at the start i um in the blurb rather i've put a link to hollyrood magazine where you can subscribe and to mandy's podcasts uh, that you can listen to but what i was going to say was in the run-up to those local elections i'm going to try and focus more on um on those elections on hollyrood on london on other areas so a police and crime commissioner Elections as well. I'm currently assembling some guests um, for those uh, episodes, but if you leave a review on iTunes um, and uh, leave a nice review would be even nicer, but just pop in the review if there's anyone you, you think I've missed out or haven't thought of. Um, they don't have to be big names. If there's an area of politics you feel that I'm not covering in the podcast that you would like to hear from, it could be international, it could be domestic, it could be hyper-local, it could be a particular candidate where you live or that you've heard of that you think has a really interesting story that other shows aren't covering, then put that in the iTunes review. Tell me who you would like me to approach and why and uh, I will uh, I will consider it and uh, almost certainly approach them. So, um, as always, thank you for downloading this and I do hope you're well. I mean certainly for for the british audience a lot of you will have had the vaccine now which is brilliant and i hope the rest of you don't have too long to wait and wherever you listen to this in the world i hope the vaccine is on its way to you as soon as possible and um and that soon we can all start to move about see each other and record episodes of these live which would uh, you know i just can't wait it's been so long um it will be a real treat to do that first uh, episode back um but mandy was a brilliant guest and uh we have some brilliant guests lined up for the coming weeks I shall leave you on that now. I'll see you next week. Ta-ra.